Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in. Well, where do we start and end with this week? It's got to be a US election special. I've on the whole avoided looking at that presidential contest. I'm really pleased I avoided it last week because by the time the podcast went out we hadn't even got to Tuesday and the dramas that followed. So I'm going to reflect a bit about that. Then we come to once again some brilliant questions and some actually emailed me last week to say that I had forgotten to give the email, which you're quite right about. I don't know how you had the email to remind me that I hadn't given the email. So I kind of resolved to myself that I'd give the email address out at the beginning and the end of the podcast. I might forget at the end because there are some great questions we've got to go through, but I'll do it now. So hopefully all of you listening won't have started your run won't have started your ironing, your squats, your sitting in bed with cocoa, all the kind of things you've told me you do whilst listening to the podcast. And you'll have a pen magically to hand. It's steverick14 at icloud.com. Steve Rick, that's uh, Steve, then R-I-C, 1-4 at icloud.com. So get your points in or questions, and some of them will be read out and Over time, I'm sure we'll get through a heck of a lot of them. So we'll come to them a bit later and I'll do the address again. But now go, run, squats, all the things that you do because the podcast is well underway. One of the interesting things about the election was the way in Britain we really struggled to cope. What a contrast that in UK general elections at one minute past 10 p.m., we know the outcome. The exit poll these days is so accurate that even though there are hours of drama to come through the night and the next day, we know the end, like going to a whodunit where you know already who has done it. There is no real speculation about the result. But on Wednesday morning, I don't know whether you had the same experience, but I was getting texts from friends, some of them immersed actually in American politics, in a state of despair. Trump had won Florida. He had declared in the middle of the night that he had won the whole race and that they should stop counting all the other votes. Extraordinary phrase, by the way. Not, I mean, the stop counting one was clearly grotesque. But there was a sort of opening where he said something like, one set of voters are trying to counter the wishes of another set. Uh, It was the most extraordinary anti-democratic observation, a sort of observation really of a kind of young child. And his behaviour this week has been so childlike, a tantrum at losing. But anyway... It was interesting that Biden himself kept very calm. Indeed, his message was, be patient, it's all going fine. And this, in a way, was curious. And I think this, I'm a great fan of Twitter. I don't buy this thing that it's a sewer. Maybe bits of it are, but you can just avoid it. I like Twitter. But this was a bad case of Twitter frenzy. Because when you kind of step back and reflect, before polling day in the United States. Loads of commentators here and in the United States said this, 
that they thought that in the middle of the night, Trump would pretend he had won. Then he would threaten legal action all over the place to delay clarity. And in the end, Biden would win, and by a relatively comfortable margin. All of that happened. It was an election result and sequence which went roughly according to how the kind of smart columnists predicted it would. In contrast to many British elections and referendums in recent times where the unexpected happened. It's just that the unexpected happened at one minute past ten when we got the results, usually gloomy for some of us. And so that was interesting. And Twitter all the time, you know, this shows X, Y, and Z. This shows that a centrist like Biden can't win and it should have been Sanders because Trump has done so well. This shows that there's something deeply wrong with America and all the rest of it. Whereas actually what it showed over four days, admittedly, was more or less what we had expected it to show. It, of course, remains shocking to a lot of us, although I think shocking's the wrong word. I don't find it that surprising that so many people voted for Trump. I don't find it surprising because for so many, politics is partly showbiz, that you identify with a character. He seems to speak to you, for you, in crude ways. And that really is it. You know, you could sort of analyse some of the other stuff, the woke kind of dimension, the issues about racism. Trump clearly relates to or appeals to racists in the United States. I don't know how many there are and how big a factor that was. It's the same with Brexit. There was an element which was kick him out. Uh, was a big feature of the Brexit campaign. I don't know how big or how significant, but we all know it was there. Indeed, the parallels between Trump and Brexit are very precise. So I didn't find any of it shocking. I didn't find the end result surprising, deeply reassuring, and of course a great cathartic moment when this populist, nationalist, mendacious figure was defeated and the alliance that defeated him is quite a powerful one. It mixed those who were to the left of Biden to the point of Republicans who had had enough of Trump and although that left one hell of a large number still with Trump that is quite a formidable coalition and there will be crossovers in the UK. I'll talk about that in a second, if that's okay. One of them is looking at the potential anti-Johnson coalition or anti-Tory coalition at the next election. But we'll come on to things like that in a moment. So not that surprising. And there is another sort of orthodoxy that has formed really since we knew that Biden was going to win. And that is Trumpism will survive the fall of Trump. And indeed, Trump might survive the fall of Trump and be the triumphant Republican candidate in four years' time. I wonder about both of those things. Populism is 
deep and reflects all kinds of things. It reflects things like the scale of the consequences of the financial crash in 2008, the fact that the global economy does leave many people left behind. And that phrase left behind that was used in the Brexit referendum had absolutely nothing to do with the EU, the left behind. It has a hell of a lot to do with the consequences of a global economy. Indeed, I explore these themes in a book I wrote just after Trump got elected, The Rise of the Outsiders, still available, because a lot of the themes that the populists of the right use are slogans which actually they are ill-equipped to respond to. That's one of them. Take back control is another from the Brexit referendum. In different ways used by Trump in an American context, certainly in 2016 and to some extent this time, because take back control implies agencies. What agency is going to return the control? The state? some mediating agency between the state and the people, local government or whatever. But on the whole, right-wing populists loathe the state and government. So it's very complicated and it takes a character, in inverted commas, to make that pitch where you utter words which are detached from your ideology And yet it's convincing because you are this big figure that just cuts through. So I think the fall of Trump means that Trumpism will be challenged. It needs a big figure to articulate these fears in a way that guides voters towards the Republican right. And I can't see any equivalent to Trump, a showbiz character who will do it. Maybe someone will emerge. But if someone does, the nature of Trump's departure. This is a childlike refusal to accept what's in front of his eyes, which has happened many times from COVID to the last few days, I think will leave him in an incredible position, even with some of his supporters. I might prove to be wrong about this. I hope I'm right. He will remain a ubiquitous figure in the United States, but he was before he was president as a media personality. And my guess is that he will become more Nigel Farage-like. In other words, he will be on the media all the time, he will make waves occasionally, but he will not be in a position, and perhaps won't want to be in the position, of acquiring the responsibility of power once again that stage that on one level he found impossible and on another utterly intoxicating. Farage, his good friend, has always run away when he's moved closer and closer to some kind of responsibility. He sets up parties on a near weekly basis, but when, for example, Brexit won uh, in the referendum in the UK, He resigned as leader of whichever it was. It was UKIP then, wasn't it? The next day. He does not want responsibility. And I suspect that Trump, once he has been kicked out of the White House, although on one level would want to win again, to show he's a winner and not a loser, will not want that responsibility in any way won't be given it. We shall see. Another of the sort of fashionable orthodoxies is to argue that America is a foreign country, it certainly is, and by the way, Britain's obsession with it is on the whole unhealthy. 
But there are crossovers with the United Kingdom and the politics of the United States. The political culture in the United Kingdom is closer to the United States than it is to much of Europe. So when Labour lost for the fourth time in 1992, and then Clinton won in November 1992 and won big, that had a famously massive impact on Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and New Labour would not have happened without Clinton. And Clinton won in 92, New Labour won in 1997. When prime ministers feel they are not close to a president, they find it deeply uncomfortable. Clinton kept his distance from John Major. Clinton thought Major had shown favouritism towards his Republican opponent, Bush, one of the Bushes the elder one, and kept his distance. And Major didn't like it because there is something intoxicating for a British Prime Minister to, to quote Tony Blair, stand shoulder to shoulder with an American president. Blair certainly found it intoxicating and famously, once Clinton left, formed that relationship with George Bush, which led towards the darkness of Iraq. And it seems to me that Johnson and Number 10 have been spinning for ages that they are ready for a Biden presidency and in some ways would prefer it. They had no choice but to convey that message to their favourite columnists because it looked as if Biden was going to win. So there's no point sort of saying privately we're standing by Trump and Biden would be a disaster because then they would be completely buggered in the eventuality of the Biden win that many of them had calculated would happen. But it is spin and it is interesting. I'm not saying, by the way, they were all totally entranced by Trump, although Johnson and Cummings clearly were entranced by Trump's style of politics, the aggressive style that they adopted in relation to Brexit and the build-up to the election was very Trumpian. And when Johnson makes claims that aren't true, it's very, very Trumpian. World-beating, all that kind of stuff. Trump, we know, I mean, Johnson has said many times, you know, before he became Prime Minister, if we had adopted Trump's style of leadership, we'd have got Brexit sorted long ago. That was when May was earnestly trying to get a deal. So Trump has had a big impact on them, but they have briefed that because of common goals in relation to climate change and that London will be hosting the G7, that there is scope for closeness. Well, over some issues there will be, but I sense that Biden, uh, well, he's gone on the record in the past calling Johnson a mini-Trump, that he will keep his distance. He's an opponent of Brexit. Trump was a supporter of Brexit. A trade deal will be some way off with the UK, and this will be painful for Johnson, who also yearns for the theatre of politics, the shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, the two men coming out together, the president and the prime minister. It's not just Johnson, they all get this huge buzz from this. And it will happen, but it won't happen in a way that conveys the potency of intimacy. It's a dangerous allure for British prime ministers, but it's there. And I remember David Hill, who worked for Tony Blair when Alistair Campbell left, and this was when um, 
huge furore. It was after Iraq and George Bush had been re-elected again and Blair was the first one out there on that carpet or two podiums, Blair on one side, Bush on the other. There they still were. And David Hill said to me, you know, a lot of voters in England are very proud when they see the prime minister next to the US president. And I think that is an assumption. I think it might well be a misplaced assumption. Johnson will get it, but not in a way I think that conveys anything special. Maybe in his own head, he will try and rationalize that he'll do a Blair in reverse. So Blair rushed out to convey an unlikely friendship with Bush. And Johnson might try and turn the tables and say, look, I can be close to Biden. But Brexit and Johnson's style of politics is at odds with Biden's. And as many have commented, the Irish issue is huge for Biden. And anything that suggests a challenge to the Good Friday Agreement, and certainly breaking international law in a way that makes good, the Good Friday Agreement more vulnerable, will land Johnson in trouble with this US administration. So with Brexit looming and a US presidency at best sceptical about the merits of Johnson, he is more isolated than he need have ever been if this whole Brexit madness had not been embarked on. And of course, he was one of the key embarkers. Is that a word? Well, you know what I mean. He ended up running or leading the campaign or, or was the leading figure on that campaign. It, so many, it's so often the case, prime ministers, the origins of their rise are also the seeds of their fall. He wouldn't be prime minister without Brexit, but I think on many different levels, it's going to torment him. Just one other thought, the CNN coverage, sorry, I know loads of people have said this, but it's just worth making the observation again that in its seriousness and depth and the length they allowed people to discuss issues, I think there are big lessons for the BBC. Not how the BBC covered the US election, but how it covers British politics. Its tendency to encourage contrived rows between someone, say, on the Corbynista left and someone on the Brexit right, or a contrived row lasting about three minutes that they can tweet out with two kind of journalists, one on the left, one on the right, or whatever, or the question time culture where you whip up an audience into a frenzy of anger and you get five panellists deliberately chosen. You can work out what they're going to say in advance so it's not unpredictable or exciting to have a kind of blazing row. Compare that with that CNN coverage. There they were covering the most dramatic story for decades for them the fall of Trump, the rise of Biden, oh, and it took many days for that narrative to become clear, and in the build-up to that narrative, there was great excitement. They just let the story be exciting. It wasn't about any of them, and it was a complicated range of themes and data, and they did it in a really good way, and the BBC, a publicly funded organisation, should really look at that and learn. I think there is a tendency at the moment at the BBC, stuff full of kind of Oxbridge managers, 
you know, armies of managers and they all meet and say, well, the people want this, the people want that. It's deeply patronizing and a complete misunderstanding of what the people want. Anyway, so many things to reflect on in that US election, many of them with implications here. We could go on for hours, but you must, I know with all of you, and we're of course completely untypical, will have watched loads and loads of the coverage. And I'll be interested in your thoughts. I'll give that email out at the end. So to the question, actually, uh, I've already got questions on the election. Uh, one from uh, Richard Pinchbeck, and Richard says, oh, first, this is the important bit. Oh, yeah, the even more important bit, Richard says, I've introduced your podcast to my family members who are now keen listeners. That's great. Hello to Richard's family, and do pass the word on to your friends and families. And he listens to the episodes while doing squats. So, God, you must be so fit. So there we are. I, I, obviously not concentrating on the podcast at all. Squatting is just all demanding. Anyway, his point is this. Now Biden has won the election as predicted. The Irish question has returned centre stage. I'm intrigued to know how the UK government will adjust, adjust its style and approach with the new president in office. And to what extent do you think the UK government will be less bold, less arrogant and less dismissive of others when it comes to negotiations with the EU? Good question. I don't know if any of you saw Johnson on Sunday afternoon give a little kind of soundbite. And it was, of course, I wanted to deal with our European friends and all, all the rest of it. He will only get a deal. And I think he does need a deal even more now, as Richard suggests, by conceding. I think he's going to have to concede quite a lot to the EU to get even a flimsy deal, the least available access to that single market that he's taken Britain out of. But I think even more he needs a deal. He needed it anyway, frankly. Uh, the British economy is already taking this hammer blow with COVID. It's going to take another one with a flimsy deal, but a no deal would be catastrophic. And a Biden presidency would look on with despair at the consequences not least for Ireland and the peace process so I think it does change the dynamics and makes a deal more likely but I tell you it's going to be a flimsy deal and even to get that he's going to have to make a series of concessions I mean we're in mad territory uh, we really are in mad territory with this uh, whole thing Anyway, thank you for that. Carry on with the squats. There's a few minutes to go. The sweat must be pouring off you. Norma Dabrowski writes, I hope the surname I've done correctly, Norma, let me know if not. Norma tells me what she's doing. As it obviously entertains you to know what your podcast followers are doing. Yeah, I'm sorry, it makes me sound pathetic. The only person getting any pleasure out of your pursuits. I thought I'd let you know that unlike all of your 5k and 10k runners, I'm always in bed with Coco. Excellent. As I recognize all of your references to PMs and politicians pre-1950. Normie, you make me sound like I'm 150. Do I go back that often? Pre-1950? I can promise you I wasn't born pre-1960, let alone 1950. Anyway, I'm thrilled that you're in bed with Coco. It sounds a more civilized way of listening. So, Norma's asks, following Boris's bounce into a hastily arranged press conference that was last Saturday evening, 
not the uh, presidential election Saturday, the one before, following a leak to a journalist. I'd like your thoughts, if not too personal, on the interdependence of politicians and the media pack. There does seem to be a rather incestuous relationship at the moment between cabinet ministers and a cabal of journalists. Allegra Stratton, the new press secretary married to James Forsyth, who writes for The Spectator and The Times. James Forsyth, godfather to Sunak's children at Winchester together and so on. Oh yeah, Mary Wakefield, commissioning editor uh, married to Cummings. Who is using who and does it matter? Yeah, these are good themes, Norma. It's very interesting for me to compare this with the new Labour era where columnists were briefed regularly and Tony Blair's camp had favoured columnists and journalists and Gordon Brown had famous columnists and journalists. But what is different this time is that some of the columns you read, you can tell, has either come direct from Dominic Cummings or some other figure in number 10 or perhaps Michael Gove sometimes or you know a very kind of in the loop cabinet minister and there aren't many of those I can tell you but the difference is this when in the new Labour era that happened too often the columnists were completely slagged off there were lots of very lofty reviewers of the media there was a column in the spectator by Stephen Glover it was a brilliant the enticing media column but he quite often went for people who he thought was being spoon-fed in this era they're sort of revered when columns clearly just reflect a number 10 view and for example I've read several columns about how number 10 would welcome a Biden presidency reported uncritically without analysis of whether that is actually the full picture And the examples given have been the G7 summit looming, the shared interest in climate change, the kind of things that Johnson mentioned in public on Sunday. And obviously that's the way they want everyone to see this development as somehow beneficial to them. It's not healthy. I I think actually having some well-informed journalists about the thinking in number 10 is great and has been very common through the decades i mean it's always been around you know wilson's number 10 sorry that wasn't pre-1950 but we're getting close to it had favored journalists who would then convey the inner thinking but my impression was it was always accompanied by a level of analysis and criticism that doesn't seem to have come with this generation and this number 10. But I can tell you this, if this number 10 becomes more fractured, it's quite fractured at the moment, and factionalized, and out of fashion, and way behind in the opinion polls, you will see that the messengers become more critical, in order to have, frankly, professional integrity. One final question, because we've God, we've gone from America to all over the place. From Mike Hopkins, hi Steve, I'm old enough to remember all your examples. You're not alone. Oh my God, I'm starting to feel really old in this one. Now, he mentions, oh yeah, I mentioned Patrick Jenkins. Well, I mentioned Bernard Jenkins. Some of you might have remembered from a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, Bernard Jenkins gave an interesting dissection of what was going wrong with testing. Of course, his father was Patrick Jenkins. 
And Mike Oplikin says, there was an interesting synergy in the podcast between discussion of localism and your mention of Jenkin. You will remember that not only was he responsible for entreating that we brush our teeth in the dark, yeah, because he was famous for that during the three-day week. He used to go around saying, brush your teeth in the dark in the early 70s. I hasten to add, I was not responsible for even brushing my own teeth in that period but that's what he did he was also the minister who had responsibility for abolishing the glc and that is really interesting because this is when many of the problems about government in britain or certainly england began with the abolition of the glc and that is a really interesting link because bernard jenkin Patrick Jenkins' son was criticising the sort of fracturing of the powers of who was responsible for what in terms of testing with COVID and, oh God, the chaos that followed the abolition of the GLC brilliantly rectified with the current system, in my view. Mayor of London, Transport for London, clear lines of responsibility and accountability. If you don't like what's happening with transport, you can kick out the mayor. The mayor, knowing that, tries to do his or her best with transport. Something similar has to happen in Manchester and other places, Liverpool. I don't know how you pull off. But those of you who can remember what life in London was like before 1997, it was a nightmare. Terrible public transport appalling congestion and it's really improved and it hasn't happened by chance that system works and the terrible transport in the northwest and parts of the northeast it's to do with no clear lines of responsibility and accountability and i know andy burnham wants more power but you're gonna have it has to be worked out in a in a way it's about the size of the fiefdom if you like it works with London, six, seven million people when you take into account those coming into London on the overground where the mayor now has some kind of power. Certainly the Oyster card introduced by Ken Livingston, so brilliant, works on overground as well. God, we've moved from Biden to the overground and the underground. I think we uh, better stop at that point. Sorry, there are lots of other questions on offer. One from Sarah Murphy raising very interesting points about framing of debates such as an Australian style deal which would be no deal and other great ones but if you'll forgive me I'm going to stop now because god we've gone from America to the overground and that's probably enough for one week but I'll be back next week thank you so much for tuning in this time and whatever you've been doing over this last half hour or so I hope you're fitter, both physically and mentally. See you next time. Thanks a lot.